only remember that we have a video before me coming up here every week, and so forgive me for coming up and then hand, head back down. Um, the other thing I need forgiveness for is uh, yesterday was a, was a crazy day. We uh, had a, a memorial service for a young man by the name of Paul Mahalik. He's been a member of our church family for, oh my goodness, probably the last uh, 10 years or so, and uh, Paul tragically died uh, back on April 1st uh, from opioids. And uh, so we had this, this service yesterday, and so I was busy getting that done and doing all of that, and still had a little bit of work to do uh, for the message uh, last evening. And so I, uh, after the service, I was working on getting the message together, and I completely forgot to pull together slides here today. So uh, you're going to have to rely on uh, your Bible and on your smartphone because I don't have any uh, passage slides up on the screen. So uh, forgive me for that. Uh, Stu asked me this morning, who's running our video, he said, hey, hey, Pastor Mike, do you got the slides? <laughs> I don't have any slides at all. So, uh, right, so please uh, bear with me with that. Well, uh, as you can see from uh, the big screen uh, this morning, that I'm going to talk uh, to you about David and Goliath. Specifically, I want to talk about where we find the courage to face our greatest fears. Now, this is an extremely long account uh, in the Bible, and so uh, we're not going to read the entirety of the text. The, the video uh, provided uh, some of the details, but uh, what I want to do is I want to kind of summarize the first half of 1 Samuel 17, and uh, then we'll read uh, the second half of it. Uh, as you saw on the slides, the Israelites and the Philistines were... Uh, preparing to engage in a battle. Uh, they were uh, located in the Valley of Allah. Uh, so basically, you've got a mountain on this side, you've got a mountain on this side, you have a valley in between, you've got the Israelites on one of the mountainsides and the Philist uh, Philistines on the other mountainside. And rather than having an all-out war where probably tens of thousands of people were ultimately going to die, uh, somehow, these uh, guys decided that they would uh, both send out a, a champion, and that the uh, champion would, the two champions would battle one another, and whatever champion ultimately won, uh, that would be the army that prevailed, and that the losing champion and his army and his people would ultimately become the, the slaves of the winning champion and his army. Now, this stopped the bloodshed. Very little bloodshed happens with something like this, but there is a problem, and the problem is uh, the Philistines have a guy by the name of Goliath, and Goliath is literally a giant. I mean, he is a giant of a man. He stands over eight feet tall. He is outfitted with the uh, modern technology, the most modern technology that they had in those days. He has a bronze helmet and a coat of bronze armor that weighs about 125 pounds. Uh, his legs are protected by bronze plates, kind of like body armor of today. Uh, he's carrying a bronze javelin on his back. He has a spear that weighs 20 pounds, and in front of him stands a another soldier who's carrying his shield because Goliath simply has so much stuff that he can't carry the, the shield. And he comes out into the middle of the valley 
and he taunts the Israelites. And he calls them out, and he wants them to send out their champions so that they can have this battle. But the Israelites, they're absolutely terrified. Um, They have no one willing or able to successfully fight Goliath. Even their king, a a man by the name of Saul, who earlier in the book of 1 Samuel was told that he was the most beautiful of all the Israelites, that he was the tallest of all the Israelites, even the king is unwilling to fight on behalf of his own army. Now, this goes on for 40 days. Every single day, Goliath comes out, he taunts the Israelites, calls the Israelites to send out their champion. Every single day, uh, the Israelites stand there in fear, and uh, nothing really ever ultimately transpires. And it's at this point uh, in the account that a young boy who's probably in his early teens uh, named David enters the picture. And, and as you can see, David has quite a, a story. Uh, he's the youngest of eight boys, and his primary job is to care for the family's sheep. And uh, sometime before the battle, uh, this priest by the name of Samuel, God spoke to him and said, hey, you know, Saul's a train wreck of a leader and so I'm going to appoint a new king, and uh, he's going to come from Jesse's family. And Samuel, I want you to go, and I want you to anoint uh, the young man in Jesse's family who's ultimately going to become king. And uh, Jesse parades all of his boys in front of Samuel. God says he doesn't want any of them. Uh, Jesse's basically run out of boys. Samuel says, hey, do you got another kid? Jesse goes, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. He's, you know, he's out. Uh, in the field. He's tending my sheep. He's the youngest one. You probably don't want that one. And Saul's like, bring him to me. Uh, Or I mean, Samuel's like, bring him to me. David comes. Samuel looks at him. God says, hey, this is the one. Samuel uh, anoints him uh, with oil, pours it over his head. Samuel leaves. And young David, dripping with oil now, is wondering what in the world has just happened to me. And sometime later, Uh, David's older brothers find themselves at this battle site where Goliath is, and David uh, gets sent out to the battle site uh, to bring some food to his brothers and see how they're doing. He arrives there just in time for Goliath's daily taunt and for the Israelite army's subsequent soiling of their undergarments each and every day as they're absolutely terrified. And David can't believe what he's hearing out of the mouth of, of this giant, Uh, And he ultimately says this, he says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and who takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David can't believe that that the entirety of the Israelite army is going to allow this bum to, to defy their God. So he basically volunteers to be... Israel's champion. And it's at this point, uh, starting in verse 32, that things pick up. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Samuel 37. We're going to start at verse 32, and uh, we're going to read until verse 50. And if you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. Oh, 1 Samuel 17, 32 to 50. It's a monster of a chapter there. And David said to Saul, 
Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and beard and, not by his beard, by his beard, and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so David, Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David uh, put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And he, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. But the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. <clears throat> the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you from my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give uh, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put, into his hand in, put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell, and he fell to his, on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, if you have been around Christianity for any length of time, you are familiar with this particular account. And most of the time, when you have uh, heard a sermon, or perhaps you've read an article about this story, or or maybe you read a book that references this account, uh, you probably have been told that it is all about how you and I are to courageously face our fears. 
And with full disclosure, that is what I have preached over the years when we have worked our way through this particular passage. And, and what I have taught and what others ha have taught is that Goliath is, is typically cast as the, the personification of, of evil. He's the personification of all the fears that we have and, and how we need to figure out how to overcome those fears. And then David typically is cast as a, as a role model of how we're supposed to face those fears. And if that's what you have been taught, I'm here to tell you that you have been taught wrong. The reality is this passage is far more about a man-centered approach to courage versus a God-centered approach to courage. And so we're going to kind of look at that. We're going to kind of unpack what it, what it means to have a man-centered approach to a courage or a human-centered approach to courage, and what does it mean to have a, a, a God-centered or a gospel-centered approach to courage. So we'll start with the, the, the man-centered approach first. Goliath is the, the poster child uh, for the way in which secular people and sadly many Christians approach courage. Look again at verses 42 to 44. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come with me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And in those few sentences, what we, we discover is that, that man's centered courage finds itself in I, me, mine. It's, it's all about me. It's all about what I can do. It's all about my strength, about how powerful I can be, of, of how I can rise above the challenges that face me. And it's completely human-centered, and it's completely human-empowered. And uh, in this passage, what we're going to see is there are several attributes about how man-centered uh, courage seeks to find uh, its power, basically. And the first is this, that it prides itself in its intellect. Verse 42, it tells us that, that Goliath has disdain for David. He looks down at, at David and he thinks to himself, who is this guy? I mean, I'm a soldier. He's a kid. Uh, I'm battle-hardened. He's a shepherd. I've got years of experience. What in the world does this kid possibly know about fighting? I am so much beyond this young boy. And you know, the reality is that's the way that many of us face our problems. We find our, our courage in, in our intellect. We don't need to, to, to fear because we're smart. And, and we're resourceful, and, and we can think our way out of this. I, I've either got street experience, or, or I've got college experience, or I've got business experience. I've got all of this experience that will help me to figure out how to face these fears in my life. Or what happens is, if, if we don't feel that we have enough intellect, 
then what happens is we begin to, to fear. We, we say, I don't fully understand what's going on. We get confused by the conflicting information that comes our way. We have trouble processing everything. And, and so we ultimately become afraid. And we've seen that uh, over the weeks and, and months as we've been going through this pandemic. Some people are super courageous. They're like, this virus has got nothing on me. I, I know exactly what's going on. I know what to do. And then other people are, are, are really cautious and kind of afraid They're, because they don't have enough information or they don't know how to process the information. And so, so what happens is, is man-centered courage, it rises or falls on, on our intellect, how much we, we think we know what's going on. But there's a, another area in man-centered courage, and it's this, that it prides itself in its superior worldview. If you look at the end of verse 43, you see that Goliath curses David by his gods. You see, not only does Goliath think that he has superior intellect to David, but Goliath also thinks that he has a superior worldview. From Goliath's perspective, uh, David's God has nothing on his many gods. And many secular people, they find their courage in what they believe to be a superior worldview. There are those who, who put all of their faith in science, and they have absolutely no room in their worldview for the supernatural. They have no room in their worldview for, for God doing something uh, above and beyond what science can possibly explain. And so when a problem comes uh, their way, uh, they don't fear because they believe that, that science is going to figure it out if only it has enough time. But their fear is that things might take too long. And again, I, I point you to this virus that, that the entire world is dealing with right now. How many people are putting their trust in science to find a vaccine to stop the spread of this virus? And basically, those who, who are doing that, their perspective is this. If only we can hunker down long enough and survive until the scientists can figure it out, Science is ultimately going to save the day. And so they're able to, to keep their fear at bay because they believe that, that science is going to come in and is going to ultimately save the day. And in some ways, science has been able to do that. For instance, in, with smallpox, science has been able to eradicate smallpox, which was a horrific disease. But what happens is, what if it doesn't? What if they don't figure it out? What happens is if, uh, you know, come next year, there, there's no vaccine? Or worse yet, what happens if, if a vaccine comes out and there are crazy, unexpected consequences? You ever see the movie I Am Legend? Ever watch that movie? I mean, a pandemic is bad, okay? Uh, uh, a pandemic followed by a zombie apocalypse? Really bad. 
And what happens? I'm not, I'm not saying this. I'm, please, there's hyperbole going on here, all right? So don't, don't be going out onto Facebook and saying, Pastor Mike thinks that the uh, virus is going to turn into, or the vaccine is going to turn into a zombie apocalypse. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just a little humor here, all right? But what happens if all the masks and all the social distancing and all the shutdowns and all the public shaming, what happens if it doesn't stop the spread? That's where fear comes in. That's where, where, where when a worldview world fails to deliver, uh, the courage that comes from that worldview ultimately wilts in fear. Now, there's a third place that, that uh, man-centered courage comes from, and it prides itself in superior power. Direct your focus to, to verse 44. How in the world can Goliath deliver David's flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field? Well, Goliath knows that answer. He, he knows it because it's from his superior power. He's got great physical strength because he is a monster of a man. He has all the, the latest technological uh, weaponry. And those two things, the, the strength of his physical body and the strength of his weapons, it provides him the courage not to fear David. He doesn't see David as a threat because of his superior power. And as such, he doesn't need to fear. And this too, brothers and sisters, is sadly how many people, including many Christians, come up with their courage. They muster courage in the midst of their fear because they simply think they have enough power. I have money and lots of it. And money can solve any problem that I possibly have. And so people who have lots of money, many times don't fear because they think the only problem I have is if I lose all of this stuff. Or I have a powerful position. I don't need to fear because I, I control things. I can make things happen however I want because I'm in a position of power. Or they say that maybe I don't have a position of power, but I got some really powerful connections. There's some people who owe me some things. And so, so they can... can uh, keep me from having fear because I can trust in them. And all of these things, either superior intellect or superior worldview or superior power, ultimately it gives us a false sense of courage because they're all built on ourselves and our strength and our ingenuity and our wisdom. And what has happened in this account is that Goliath totally underestimates David. Because what? He's overestimated himself. So when David shows up on the battlefield and he's got no armor and he's this pipsqueak of a kid and there's no sword and there's no shield, his only weapon is a sling and a bag of stones, Goliath, he, he approaches David with absolutely no fear at all. Because what can David do to him? Because Goliath, from his perspective, is superior to David in every single way. And that is Goliath's fatal failure, his error, his lack of fear, 
his self-reliant courage causes him to let his guard down. So much so that a single stone, probably two and three inches in diameter, coming out of this sling at about 60 miles an hour, hits him square in the forehead, right below the helmet, and takes his life. And brothers and sisters, courage that is based on self-reliance, it always leaves blind spots. And those blind spots, they always lead to destruction. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. In 1 Corinthians 3, I, again, I don't have it on the big screen, but just listen carefully to what I say here. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are all futile. You see, if our courage is ultimately wrapped up in our human ability, it will disappoint and it will prove itself futile. So if courage is not found in, in I, me, and mine, where in the world does, does lasting courage actually come from? Well, what we see when we look at David's life is that, that, that there is a God-centered approach to courage that ultimately is lasting. And before we dive into this, we need to remember that, that David never intended to be involved in this battle. He, up to this point, he's still a shepherd. And he's still hanging out with, with his dad, and he's still taking care of the sheep. But he also is a messenger for Saul. So somehow he's kind of making his way back and forth from the battle line on occasion. You know, I guess, you know, hey, there's a message for Saul. Hey, I'll watch the sheep, David. You go out and see Saul for a bit. You come back as soon as you can, and then you can watch the sheep kind of thing. So David probably has been to the battlefield more than one time. He's probably seeing the, the taunts that are going on, or perhaps he brought the message when the taunts weren't going on. But on this particular day, the, the 40th day of Goliath's taunts, uh, David, he hears it all. And he can't believe his eyes, and he can't believe his, his ears. And, and, and he's blown away that, that nobody is standing up to this guy. He just cannot get this. He, he knows who God is. He knows God's power. And he's like, why in the world are we cowering against these people? And so in verse 26, it says this, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this brings us to the first attribute of God-centered courage. And it finds itself in a right understanding of the conflict that we're involved with at the time. You see, David clearly understands the root of this problem. 
He, he, he's able to see beyond soldiers on, on, on mountainsides. He's able to be, uh, see beyond uh, this guy in the center who's taunting. He, he's able to see that this is not just some kind of geopolitical thing, that there's actually something supernatural that's going on here. David sees that, that the Philistines aren't ultimately battling the Israelites, and, and Goliath isn't ultimately uh, going to battle a champion from the Jews. The problem is the Philistines and Goliath are ultimately against God. And by calling Goliath an uncircumcised Philistine, David is pointing out that this man doesn't worship or love or care about God. He's more, of an, more than the enemy of the Israelites. He's an enemy of God. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn from, from David to be able to understand what's behind the conflict that we are facing in our lives in, and in our world. Because many times, rather than carefully picking our battles, we don't understand them. And we don't understand our enemies. And, and lots of times what happens is we end up fighting all of the wrong battles. We fight about politics or platforms or preferences or personalities, which many times have absolutely nothing to do with God and his word. And sometimes, not only do we pick the wrong battles, but we, we misidentify our enemies. Many times, uh, people see enemies. Uh, many times, Christians look at, at another person and see them as an enemy, but the reality is what? That that person you think is an enemy loves God and, and loves Jesus and loves God's word just as much as you do. The problem is they just happen to see some things differently. And when, when all of this gets thrown together, we end up fighting the wrong battles against the wrong people. And David understood the conflict. And he understood that, that, that his enemy, Goliath, and the Philistines, they're a group of people who are defying his God and hate his God. And that gives him courage. And so many times we don't do that. So many times we fight against other Christians who just happen to believe a little differently than we believe about things. When we begin to choose the right battles and understand the real enemy, courage will flow naturally because God will provide that courage. Now, David's courage didn't just flow from that, though. It didn't just flow from a right understanding of the conflict and the enemies, but it also flowed because he understood that God was faithful in the past. Look at how he responds in verses 34 and 35 when uh, Saul says, hey, you can't fight Goliath because you're just a youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when they, there came a bear or a lion and took a lamb from the flocks, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he had rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. See, God-centered courage, it finds its strength because it knows what God has ultimately done in the past. David finds courage because he remembers what God has done for him when he was even younger than he was right now. Notice, he doesn't look at his past victories and say to himself, wow, look at what I pulled off. Man, I was awesome when I, I, I took down that lion. I was awesome when I took down that bear. No, he says, look at what God has done. And we are a strange people because most of us are not students of history. We're not even students of our own history. We tend to forget about the past, especially in our own lives. We so easily forget how God has provided for us in the past. We forget those times that we were facing one difficulty or another difficulty, and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, and God ultimately shows up through his power and provides for that very thing. And all of us who claim the name of Jesus, we have those times. Times when, when we were completely done for unless God ultimately moves. And move is exactly what he does. I think about my own life. When I'm afraid and when I need courage, when, when there is something that is looming out there, and when I want to give up in the midst of the struggle, I try to think back to what were the times when I was desperate for God and God ultimately showed up. And the first place that I go is when I was 18 years old and when I couldn't stand Christians and when God incredibly kindly surrounded me by, around Christians, put Christians around me who actually loved me and God drew me to himself. I remember that. I, 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 that, was a, that was a turning point in my life. I could have went one way or another. If God would not have shown up at that time, I wouldn't be here doing the things that I'm doing. I, I would probably have a train wreck of a life right now. I remember when, when God brought Kathy into my life, when I, I couldn't find a girl to date me for more than, than a couple hours. And then suddenly God gives me this young woman who... who I ask her out, and she says, yeah. And at the end of the date, I said, hey, would you like to get together again? She's like, yeah, can we do that tomorrow? And we go out for five days straight when I'm home on break. I'm like, what is going on? This has never happened. What has changed? Well, well what changed was God actually showed up. I can remember when, when God carried me through the, the death of, of my grandmother and grandfather who died within three months of one another. It was absolutely devastating in my life. I'm like, God, how am I going to get through this? Up to that point, I had only known death one time earlier when I was 12, when my, when my other grandfather died. I didn't even understand that. But here I'm desperate, and God provides. I can remember when Kath and I prayed and prayed and prayed that, that God would allow us to adopt a baby girl. I remember all of those months and months and months of waiting, and then God provides Nicole out of his power, out of his strength. I can remember 20 years ago when we were starting Living Water and 
We knew that we knew that we knew that we were supposed to start this multi-ethnic church that, that loved the gospel and loved God's people, yet we were eight white couples and a three-year-old baby black girl trying to start a church that was for all people. And God provided. And I can remember in all the countless conflicts that we've had here at Living Water over the last 20 years, many of conflicts you guys never even know about that God beautifully enters into. And you know what? I bet you guys all have similar things. I bet there are times in your life where, where there was a, was a divorce and you thought, how in the world am I going to survive this? Or there was a betrayal. And like, how am I going to survive this? Or, or there was a miscarriage. Or you lost a, 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 a child after birth. Or, or perhaps you lost a job. Or, or maybe one of your, your, your best friends turned their back on you. Whatever it is, whatever, you get an illness out of the blue and you don't know how you're going to survive it. There, there's tons of things that happen in our lives. Yet God, he shows up. And many times, the, the, the courage for, for the present flows from the remembrance of God's faithfulness in the past. Now, there's two other sources of God-centered courage. They're found in verses 43 to 47. Let me read them to you again. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and, all, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, for he will give you, uh, give you into our hand. You see, David has this unwavering allegiance to God. He's not checking out. He, he, he's, he's tied in with God. He, he knows that he has to stay with the Lord. And he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. David, he is so tied into God. He believes him so much. He's trusting no one else, not even himself. And this reminds me of a time in John chapter 6. Jesus, he's talking to a, a, you know, scores of, of, of people, of, of his followers, and he's trying to explain to them what is ultimately going to happen. He's trying to explain to them that, you know what, I'm ultimately going to die, I'm going to suffer on a cross. And, and, and he uses an allusion to, to the Lord's Supper, he uses an allusion to crucifixion, and he basically tells them that, that, that there's going to be a day when you're going you're to eat my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. And some people like, took that completely literally, and they're like, whoa, this is one freaked out dude. There's no way in the world I'm going to follow him. And tons of people left Jesus because they didn't quite understand what he was saying. And so in, in John 6, verse 67, Jesus says to the 12, 
do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave me like all these other people have? And Simon Peter answered him. And brother, this should be our reply. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you know how many people, they'll, they'll write me and they'll say, Pastor Mike, you know, my life's not going well right now. I'm thinking about dumping God. And I think to myself, where are you going to go? Where, where are you going to go? Yeah, this situation stinks right now. Yeah, you're going through suffering right now. Yeah, your marriage is a wreck. Yeah, your kid is, is, is a, a, a train wreck. Yeah, you're, you've lost your job. You, you've been betrayed by your friends. Where are you going to go? Where? And people want to run away. Why? Because they're scared. Many times people want to run away because they know what God requires. And they don't want to do what he requires. And my thought is this, where are you going to go? Who ultimately is going to rescue you? You're going to turn to the bottle? You're going to turn to drugs? You're going to turn to sex? You're going to go worship a, a lilac bush? I don't know. What? Where are you going to go? David's got courage. Because he has this unwavering allegiance to God. And it's our unwavering allegiance to God that gives us courage to face our greatest fears. And the more that we align ourselves with God, the more that we can stare evil in the face and persevere. And there's one other thing in this passage that, uh, and it's God-centered courage that finds its strength for, for God to to prevail in the present. In verse 46, he says what? This day, not tomorrow, not a week from now, not sometime in the future, but this day the Lord is going to deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see, when David goes toe-to-toe with Goliath, he knows that God is going to deliver at that moment. He's not going to tarry. Now, there are times in our lives that God does tarry, but there are times that you know, that you know, that you know that God is not going to wait any longer and that he is going to deliver. And and as much as God worked 3,000 years ago, he is still at work today. And and if we find our courage in, in secular strength, we will be found wanting. 
But if we find our courage from from God-centered strength, we can stand up against the hardest things in life. And one of the things, as I wrap up here, one of the things that I missed in this account when I used to preach it was where you and I were in the story. You know, I always thought that God was trying to make us be like David. That, that, that we were ultimately to be the David in the story. That we were to charge against the giants in our lives. But the fact of the matter is this. You and I aren't David. You and I are the Israelites on the mountainside, shaking in our boots. And why do we shake in our boots? Because most of the time we have embraced human-centered courage. Things come up in our lives and we say, you know what, I can handle this. I can beat this illness. I can survive this loss of a loved one. I can push through this job loss. I can find a way to to get through life with this difficult child. I can overcome this betrayal. I can survive this injustice. And you know, it works for a while. It does. It's like when I say to myself, you know what? I can go a week without eating sugar. And I make it like six hours, and then I'm digging into the M&Ms, right? I mean, that's how it works. But it's never lasting. We can only push forward with our strength for so long, and then we cave. The illness is too tough. The grief is too deep. The bills are too great. The parental disappointment is too frustrating. The betrayal is too painful. The injustice is too discouraging. And over time, we find ourselves back up on the mountaintop, shaking in our boots, standing beside everybody else who's shaking in their boots, wondering how in the world can we overcome the world's difficulties and the pain and the suffering. And that's where we're at. And you know what we need, just like the Israelites, we need a champion. And 2,000 years ago, God gave us the champion. Jesus is the David marching against Goliath. He's the one who's going in our place. He's the one who fights the battles in our place. So many people think that, 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 that we're good people and we can stand before a holy God and the God of the universe is going to take us right in. Well, the fact of the matter is we're not good people. That doesn't mean that we're desperately wicked. It's not like we can't do some good but we're sufficiently depraved enough that if we stand before the God of the universe and we try to convince him to let us into heaven, he's going to look at us and say, what do you think? But God, I went to Living Water Church. I put in an offering. I walked little ladies across the street. I was kind to my neighbors. I read the Bible. I prayed. And we all know what, what Jesus says to those things. Get behind me, I don't even know who you are. We need a champion. We need someone to go in our place, and that was Jesus. Jesus went in our place. Jesus lives the life we can't live. He does it. He doesn't say, I'm not going to eat sugar for, you know, for a week and 
cave in in six minutes. He goes the distance. No sin at all. Why? For us. Just like David went into battle for the Israelites, Jesus went into battle against sin for us. And you know what? The evil one and sin looked at Jesus and said, you're not all that. He was despised and rejected. He was belittled. People didn't think he had any power. On the cross, evil thought it won. But the tomb rolled away. And evil discovered that it was mistaken. That that which appeared to be weak was more powerful than anything ever. Infinitely powerful. And he did that for you and he did that for me and for all of those who will repent of their sins and receive him in faith. And so regardless of what this world dishes up, regardless of the struggles that come your way, you and I, if we have received Jesus, we can stand in the midst of the greatest battle and have courage. Because he's delivered in the past, he will deliver now. Because his love is great. And even in this world, if it doesn't go the way that we really want it to go, even if suffering lasts us the balance of our life, God only makes it right in the end when he welcomes you and I into the glory of heaven. And we get to join with all of those other saints who didn't receive the things that they thought that they should receive until ultimately they're in the presence of God. Might we live with great courage? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for my friends. Thank you for this time. Lord, I do pray that, Lord, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to see the great work that you have done in our lives in the past, but more importantly, to see the great work that you have done in the scriptures. Lord, you have proven yourself faithful time and time again. Help us, Heavenly Father, to, to face our fears with courage based not on our own strength, Heavenly Father, but based on the strength of your Son. And might you be glorified through it all. And it's through your Son's name we pray and all God's people say, Amen.